If you haven't been with us, we've been walking through this story of the Bible, God's story. Someone today told me, oh, I get it. His story, history. So yeah, that's the, that's the play on words. Uh, so we're praying for them. Uh, and uh, so we've been just kind of walking through the story of the Bible, and we're here, 33 lessons in, we've made it to the New Testament. All right, we're here. That's right. So what we're going to do, that means another symbol, right? And you guys are excited for this. Today, uh, we've been, if you haven't been with us, we've just been making these little motions, total physical response to help remember the story and the key elements of the story. We're adding a new one today, and it's Jesus. So take out both palms, okay, and you're just going to go Jesus, all right, as the symbol, uh, the sign language for Jesus. If you were here last week, we have silence, and then Jesus, all right? So from the top, we've got God, creation, fall, promise, flood, tower, patriarchs, exodus, law, conquest, judges, Kingdom, divided, exile, return, silence, and now Jesus. All right, very good. You all get a sucker at the end of this morning's message. Um, if you remember back at the top, we, we went through this, we called it a table of contents, uh, just kind of showing the overarching story, and I just wanted to catch us up to speed to where we are in part five today. If you remember at the beginning, part one. It was simply the first two chapters of Genesis. Here's God all by himself in eternity past. The only true God. The sovereign, holy, immeasurable, incomparable God. He creates the world, including his magnum opus, Adam and Eve. And he creates Adam and Eve for a relationship with him. That's why we were made. And then you move on to the second part right away, just three chapters into the Bible... And Adam and Eve, who were created to worship God and trust God, turn from Him and worship and trust themselves. And sin enters into the world and fractures the relationship between God and man. And now the rest of the story, it it, it pivots off of Genesis 3.15, where God promises, I'm going to send this deliverer who's going to come and crush the head of Satan, crush sin and death to make a way back to me. And the rest of the story is a redemption story. God reconciling his people to himself. And we see in part three, he gets more specific and says, I'm going to call out this nation. He calls Abraham out in Genesis 12 and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation, we later see is called Israel, and from this nation, I'm going to bless every nation, that everybody, not just Jew, but also Gentile, will one day benefit from the coming deliverer from the line of Israel. And then we saw in part four, we called it the law, where the, God gives this, makes this covenant with Israel, where he says, here's the deal. If, if you obey this law, I will bless you, and if you disobey it, I will curse you. And of course, we read the story, and over and over, Israel fails to obey God, and he eventually banishes them from that promised land, showing that man can do nothing in his own power to make himself right with God. And this entire story has been pointing forward. Jeremiah and Ezekiel said there's coming this, this man who's going to come, and he's going to give you a new heart, because you can't clean up your own heart I'm just going to give you a new heart and a new spirit and a new life. And all the prophets were pointing toward what we're going to look at today in part five, and that's the deliverer. 
And today we're going to see on the scene, he comes at long last. And then, of course, part six, what we'll look at in a few months, is the end. And we'll see how we fit into this grand story. Now, when we look at part five, the deliverer, we're going to see, actually, it's told uh, in four different ways. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and we have these four men with four different perspectives on the same story. And so in the next few months, as we walk through the white life of Christ, we're just going to kind of weave in and out of these four stories because they all go together to have different eyewitness accounts, but to tell the same story about the same deliverer. Now, if you remember last week, we were talking about this 400 years of silence. The very end of the Old Testament, there's this prophet named Malachi. He's the last one to speak from God before they enter into this time of silence. And, what, and there's a couple of prophecies that we've got to see this morning if we're going to make sense of this New Testament and what we're going to, what we're going to encounter. He says in chapter 3, this is God talking through Malachi. He says, look, I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come. So before this deliverer comes, he says, I'm going to send this messenger who's going to prepare the way. And then the last two verses of the Old Testament. Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah. Now, Elijah's already come. There's another man coming in the same spirit with the same ministry that Elijah had come with. And it says, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. Verse 6, his preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. He's going to come and call the people to turn and prepare their hearts for this coming deliverer. And then the Old Testament curtain drops and they hear nothing from God for 400 years. No prophecies, no manifestations, nothing. And then 400 years later, God is, he has been silent, but he has not been absent. Remember last week he said he's behind the curtain, and he's, he's doing all these wardrobe changes and the scenery changing. He's, he's orchestrating this, so when the curtain rises, the scene will be set for the greatest act in human history. And that silence is broken with the voice of a baby crying in the arms of Elizabeth and Zechariah. And this voice that's crying in their arms will be the same voice that when he becomes a man will be crying in the wilderness, prepare your hearts because the Lord is coming. And this morning we want to look at Luke chapter 1 and we're going to look at four different individuals who God prepares in in this work for preparing the hearts of the people of Israel for this long-awaited Savior. The first two we're going to look at are Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, you look in Luke 1, uh, verse 5, it says, When Herod was king of Judah, remember Herod? We said it's a Roman world now, last week, that that the Caesar is over the empire and then he has these little puppet kings over all these provinces. Well, the province of Judea, or Judah, where the where the Jewish people live, Herod is their king. And he says there was a a Jewish priest named Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. So we have this couple. They're both from the priestly line. And then in verse 7, it says they had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive and they were both very old. Now, this is a sensitive topic, the topic of infertility. And and it's something that that touches the hearts of, of us today in 2017, Um, just like it did in the day when Luke wrote this chapter. Also at this time, if a couple was unable to conceive, 
There was a lot of shame brought on them from their culture. They were looked down upon because they were not able to bear children. Children were your pride. They were your inheritance. So there was a lot of hurt. A lot. This is a sensitive, this is a sore spot for Zechariah and Elizabeth. They've waited their whole lives and have not been able to, to procreate. And then in verse 11, it says, While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, he was doing his priestly thing, it says, An angel of the Lord appeared to him. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. Yeah, no kidding. Have you ever, I mean, we kind of, we read these stories and we just kind of gloss over it because we're so used to it. And an angel showed up, Gabriel was there, like, what up, Gabriel? You know, what's happening? But imagine being at work and an angel shows up right by your desk. I'm sitting there taking, you know, I'm putting together my sermon and an angel shows up. I'm just like, hey, can you get me a cup of coffee? Right? I mean, this would, this would terrify me. I'd be wetting my robe too right? I mean, he, so he just, he's stunned. He's, he's knocked to his feet. And this is just an angel, not even God himself, just an angel of the Lord. And this angel speaks these amazing words to him. He goes, but the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. He and his wife have been pleading with God their entire lives for a child. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. Now, this is John the Baptist, not John the disciple, not John who wrote the book of John said, you will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. He will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then listen to these words and see if you, they're familiar to you from what we just read in Malachi. He will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. There it is. That's the prophecy. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. A direct quote from Malachi, the last verse of the Old Testament. And he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. 400 years later, the silence is broken by a fulfillment of the exact last prophecy they had heard. This is incredible. And you imagine, I mean, but then I want us to notice something here. He said, he's going to prepare the way for the coming of who? Look at what it says in verse 17. For the coming of the Lord. Wait a second. Who is this coming deliverer? It is none other than God himself. God's coming to earth. And this is what it said back in Malachi. Look at it. Look, I'm sending my messenger. This is God speaking. And he will prepare the way before me. I'm coming. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come. So if it already wasn't crazy enough, this angel shows up and they're going to give him a son after years and decades of waiting. He says this child is going to actually be somebody that we have been prophesying about for hundreds of years and he's going to make the way for God himself to visit earth. So it blow your mind. And you imagine, I mean, you put yourself in Zechariah and, and, and Elizabeth's shoes. I always pick on, on Chuck and Janice. We have a young church, and these are our patriarch and matriarch of the church. And so I always imagine, I mean, imagine that they had not ever had any children. Now, this is purely hypothetical, because when it comes to the command, be fruitful and multiply, the Thorntons have always been very compliant. Like, <laughs> no problem with that. So God comes to Chuck and Janice and says, you've been waiting for a son, and I know you're now in your early 50s, right? And, and, and you haven't had a kid yet. And I'm going to give you this son, but not just any son, a son who's been prophesied for hundreds of years. And then he is actually going to come and prepare the hearts of the people for God himself to descend. Imagine hearing this news. 
But this would have to leave Zechariah and Elizabeth wondering, how is this creator going to come to earth? Like, what is this preparing of the way going to look like? Is he going to descend from the skies? Like, you know, what's a Super Bowl? Lady Gaga comes, you know, coming down from above with all the pyrotechnics. You know, you got golden chariots and angels make way. You know, and it's kind of this whole thing. <laughs> so, so like, how... And, and this is what happens. The, the next part of our story tells us exactly how Jesus is going to come, and it is like no one would have imagined. The, she, the scene shifts, and we move over to Mary. Gabriel's not done making some birth announcements yet, some gender reveals. Check it out. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, so John the Baptist is two-thirds of the way here, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Now, two things here we need to know. Number one, it says she is a virgin. And if you know the story, we'll talk about in a minute why that is so crucial to this tale. The second thing it says is that Joseph's from the line of David, and it actually turns out Mary is as well, and we know that's important. If you've been tracking the story with us, this deliverer is prophesied to be not just from Israel, but from the tribe of Judah, and specifically from the, the line of David. It says he's going to come and reign, and this deliverer, his reign will never end. He's going to be the eternal king in the line of David. So these two important facts come out here at the top. And then Gabriel appears to her and is said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. To which she understandably replies, She's confused and disturbed. Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Another person freaking out. You must love to be Gabriel, right? You go back to the angels. Did you see the look on her face? <laughs> came out of nowhere. Uh, <laughs> Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor which is the word for grace with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. Name means saves. He saves. He's the Savior. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Here it is. This was the coming deliverer, the eternal king in the line of David, and to which Mary understandably responds. But how can this happen? I'm a virgin. Fair point, right? Uh, if you're going to have a baby, uh, you know, she's like, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, right? I'm no doctor, but if I haven't slept with somebody, to which Gabriel says something that would just blow your mind. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. Gabriel says this baby is not coming from Joseph or from any other man. This baby will be born of God himself. Now, it's important to look at this phrase, Son of God, because the Son of God, it, it does not mean, it, it can mean a couple different things, you know, especially the way that the Greek language used it. It doesn't mean, and this is important to understand, that God did not give birth to Jesus, or he did not exist, and then God, you know, impregnated Mary, or, you know, that, that Jesus wasn't there, and now he gives birth to him, and now he's here. This, this phrase, son of, can be understood a couple different ways. And one way can be physical descent. I am Justin, and I am the son of Theodore Scott and Carmen June, right? There it is, that picture taken squarely in the 80s, right? Um, 
So I am a physical descent of Scott. I'm born of him. But the word can also mean this. It can mean the expression of character or nature. So for example, in the New Testament, Barnabas, his name means son of encouragement. Encouragement did not have a baby, okay? That's not how it works. What it's saying is he is a man who is encouraging. His nature is to encourage. Or on the negative side, in Ephesians 2, it calls us the sons of disobedience. Again, disobedience is not the parents. Now some of you are like, you don't know my baby daddy, right? He is. He is disobedience incarnate, right? Well, that's for a different sermon topic. Um, So when it says the Son of God, it's not saying that that God is his physical father. What it's actually saying is Jesus Christ would be the very nature and expression of God. Jesus is God. Hebrews 1 tells us this. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. So God himself is coming to earth. And this also points us back to the promise that we saw at the beginning uh, of our story in the garden. If you remember what God promises right after they've sinned, he's speaking to the serpent, and this is what he says. I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring, talking to Satan, now not Satan's like physical kids, he's talking about evil, and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now notice here, he says her offspring or her seed. He does not say their offspring or their seed. The deliverer will come from a woman, not from a man. Now, why is that so significant? Because girls rule and boys drool, right? No. Because when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit... Sin entered into the world, and everyone who was a son or daughter of Adam, which is the rest of humankind, would be born into sin, inheriting Adam's sinful nature. This means that you and I, look at what Romans 5 says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death to everyone, brought death, so death spread to everyone. Why? For everyone sinned. So, So here's what Paul's saying there. This means that you and I, we are born into this world dead to God, meaning separated from a relationship with God. Our bend is toward sin, toward evil, toward rebellion. No one growing up had to teach me how to sin, Right? I'm a sinner by nature, not because I hate you. And, and what happens is, and if you're a parent here, you're like, amen. <laughs> Come to my house. You'll see all sorts of little sin natures running around wild and free. You did not have to teach them how to say no, right? How to spit that food back out, how to throw that bottle back on the door, on the floor for the 12th time. It's part of their DNA. But Jesus was not born a son of Adam. He was not born with a sin nature. Jesus came from God. Jesus is God. And so that's why the angel Gabriel can say in verse 35, so the baby will be born holy, will be born perfect, will not be born a sinner like every other man. Because he doesn't come from man. He comes from God. He is God. So God would be coming to earth on a rescue mission and not on a golden chariot, not down from the ceiling like Lady Gaga. He would be coming like a fragile baby in a manger the God baby. Now we we shift back over to John. 
And these two women, Mary and Elizabeth, are actually um, some sort of cousin. When you don't know how you're related, you just say cousin. A few days later, Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea, to the town where Zechariah lived. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. So here, John and Jesus are both in utero, okay? Neither one have been born yet. And this is incredible. Watch what happens. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leaped within her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Before he's even born, John, in her womb, senses that Jesus is near, and he starts doing prenatal backflips. It's like, Jesus is here. Are you kidding me? And this marks what the rest of his life will be. I love, love, love John the Baptist. He is the biggest cheerleader of Jesus before he even is delivered. And this would be a consistent theme in his life. Look at the role and the purpose of John. We're going to look here at two things that he is and one thing that he's not. And some things I think we can learn from that. The first thing it says that he is is John is the preparer of the way. Now, when John is born, Zechariah, who hadn't been able to speak because of his unbelief, he opens his mouth, and the first thing he does is he, he says, it says the father, his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and gave this prophecy. Remember we said prophecy means to speak for God. This is what God says through Zechariah. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. He says everything the prophets have been pointing for, all the promises, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with with Moses, every single one of these things is coming true in this man, in this baby who will be born. And then he turns and he looks into the eyes of his own son, who has just been born. He says, and you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way of the Lord. John's job was to prepare the way for Jesus. So what does this mean to prepare the the way? Well, at that time, there was this custom. When when kings would go from, they would go on these epic journeys and see all the people, right? They couldn't just, they couldn't just send something out on social media or or a video over the internet. So they would go and they'd visit all the people in their kingdom and they'd go from town to town. Well, there was this messenger who would go before them and he would shout out, make way, the king is coming. Prepare the roads. And they would literally, they'd have people fill in the potholes and clear the debris to make the path, the literal path, straight and clear for the king to come. And then he'd go in the town and he'd say, get ready. And all the townspeople would gather on the side of the street and they'd crane their necks looking and waiting and longing for anticipation of this coming king that would come through their city. They didn't want to miss it. And John the Baptist He's doing the same thing here where he's crying out, make way because the king is coming. But he's not having people prepare the literal roads. He's having them prepare the roads of their hearts. Which implies what? That the people of Israel, their hearts were not prepared. Their hearts were sinful. We've seen, well documented, their unfaithfulness, their rebellion. They've got got potholes and debris all over their heart. It's like a dirt road in Alaska, right? It's a mess. So how would he prepare their hearts? His ministry was what we call a baptism, which just means to place into water, or to place into. It was water baptism, and this was a baptism of repentance. We'll talk about this more in a few weeks, but, but what repentance means is to change one's mind. See, the people of Israel needed to change their mind about what? They needed to change their mind about their sin. And they needed to admit, to come clean. 
And this baptism symbolized them saying, I'm a sinner and I need a savior and to look and watch for the savior that was coming. This was John's job. Anybody here play golf? I, uh, I play frisbee golf. That's poor man's golf, right? That's the kind of golf your pastor can afford. And uh, here's a picture of me. Picture perfect form. Look at that. That's right. If you want lessons, I'll, I'll do it for you. Nominal fee. Um, right before you're about to throw the frisbee or take the shot, what do they yell out? Yeah, yeah that's right. Four! Four! Why do they yell that out? So that people don't get whacked in the back of the head with a golf ball or a disc golf, right? Golf disc. There we go. So everybody snaps their necks and they look in anticipation of this ball so they don't end up in the emergency room. That happened to me once, so that's another story. So here comes this golf ball, or here comes this disc, and John is effectively in the wilderness crying out, Four! Look! Watch! Turn your necks because the, the coming Savior is here. And you return from our sin to Jesus and wait for him in anticipation. See, his whole job was to point people to the coming Savior, which leads us to the second point. John is the witness to the light. Now you go over to John chapter 1. Again, John the disciple wrote this about John the Baptist. And he says in John chapter 1, God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. So what words are popping up here? These are courtroom words. He has a testimony. He's a witness to the light. So what's the job of a witness? The job of a witness is to stand and and declare what they've seen and what they know. Now the job of a witness is crucial because if you don't have that eyewitness, it becomes hearsay. It's their story versus their story. But if there's an eyewitness, in fact, the more witnesses you have, the more sure you can be of what was seen. So the witness is crucial, but it's not about the witness at all, is it? The only important thing about the witness is what the witness has witnessed. And so John's job was super important. He was sent from God to be a witness, to give a testimony about the light that was coming, to be a voice in the wilderness crying, make way for the Lord. And our job, likewise, as believers, is crucial to what Jesus is doing today. When he told his disciples, go into the world and make disciples of of these nations, The way we do it is the same thing that John was doing. We open our mouths and we give witness. Look at what Romans 10 says about this. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Life and death is on the line. Salvation's on the line. And look at the job he's given us. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? Salvation by faith. And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? That makes sense. And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them. And how many, and how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why scripture says, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring the good news. Now we say, you've probably heard it said, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words. No doubt about it, the way we love each other, the unity and the love that we show will show the world Christ's love in us. But no one can know about Jesus unless we tell them. See, my neighbor is not going to understand that Jesus died for their sins and rose again to give them new life by me staring at them. 
Try to get like, osmosis, get it squeezed out. You got to open your mouth. You got to say something. We have been called to be witnesses. And just like John, our role is crucial. That for whatever reason, God saw it fit to use the church to spread the name of Jesus to the four corners of the earth. So John's job as a witness was necessary. Our job as a witness is necessary. However, that leads us to our one last and all-important part, that John is not the light, and neither am I. Look at what it says in verse 8. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. Why would, why would John find it necessary to make that distinction here? Because he's a witness to the light, but just for the record, John's not the light. Why does he have to go to that extent? Why does he say it like that? Because there's all the difference in the world between a witness saying, look at me, and a witness saying, look at him. We are not here to tell the world about us. We're here to tell the world about Jesus. You see, he says he's a witness to the light. Now think about a light. Think about a light bulb. Okay, what's the purpose of a light bulb? It's to give light. Now imagine the glass saying, you know what, this is ridiculous. It seems like everybody's looking right through me, right? All they want to do is look at the light. What about me? I have feelings too. I guess glasses and have feelings. But it says, look at me. And so the glass decides, you know what? I'm going to bedazzle myself up. And it's putting jewels on itself and like painting itself and doing all these things to try to get noticed. But what happens there? The more it tries to draw attention to itself, it's inhibiting its original purpose. The, jo- the glass does its job the best when it's seen the least. My job is not to point you to me. And can I be honest? My flesh wants to be the center of attention. I want the universe to be about me. I want you to like me. Please like me. I, even this morning, I'll be honest, I mean, as I'm preparing this sermon, put the final touches on it. I'm thinking, man, I hope they think that that joke was funny. I hope they wait, walk away going, man, he's so spiritual. Man, we learned a lot today. How great is Justin? If you walk away from this message thinking about me, for better or worse, I've failed you. You should be walking away thinking, Jesus is amazing. See, our flesh, it wants the universe to revolve around us. That's, that's our hearts. And John's disciples, they went through this. When John and Jesus grew up and they're both baptizing, look at, look at what happens. This story is incredible. So, so John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, talking about Jesus, he's also baptizing people. And everyone is going to him instead of coming to us. He says, Jesus, the disciples of John the Baptist say, Jesus is stealing your followers. He's getting more Instagram likes than you are, right? Everyone's drinking his Kool-Aid. We got to put a stop to this. We're losing our people. And I love John's response to his disciples. He says, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. I have nothing that God hasn't given to me. I have nothing to brag about. This is not about me. He says, you yourselves know how plainly I told you, I am not the Messiah. 
He's not the light. He's not the Messiah. He says, I am only here to prepare the way for him. My whole job was that to push people toward Jesus. I hope everyone goes to Jesus. And then he makes this analogy. He says it's the bridegroom who marries the bride. And the bridegroom's friend is to simply stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. Now, it's well documented. I've never been the bridegroom, okay? But I've been a groomsman in, in many weddings, including my buddy Jacob's here. This is me and Luke. And we stand with him in his wedding. And imagine we're standing there and Jacob and Lisa center stage and I'm over here, like always. And I'm watching and I'm going, wait a second, everyone's looking at Jacob. And Lisa, she's so obsessed with this one guy. Like, hey, over here, I'm somebody too. Like, look at me and I start juggling and breathing fire and doing whatever, push Jacob out of the way. Look at me, everybody. What's my job? It's to stand here. The whole reason I'm angled this way is to look at my friend and rejoice that his bride has been united with him. And John says, my whole job is to get ready, to make the people's hearts ready for Jesus, the bridegroom, to come. Because he's here to capture his bride. And I want the bride, the people of God, to be only looking at him. And then he says these profound words, he must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. Other versions say, he must increase, and I must decrease. Second Corinthians, it says it this way. So you see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. It's all about Jesus. He is the main character of the story, not me. And honestly, my flesh deals with this. You hear of a family and they say, you know, we decided to go to Birchridge. We're, we're now attending College Heights. So we were looking around and Kalifonsky, Christian, they worship way better than you guys. And I have to examine my heart and say, do I want people to be followers of Jesus or followers of Justin. Because you know what? We're all on the same team. As long as people are finding a place, a community of Jesus followers, and they're growing in their affections for him, praise God. This is not about me. This is about him. And John says, man, there's someone coming, and I'm unworthy to even tie his sandals. The Son of God himself has come to earth. Don't look at me, look at him. So we have to ask ourselves, because listen, pride plays itself out differently for all of us. It's at the, the same root, but it comes out differently. For some of us, it, it comes out in arrogance, and we want everyone to pay attention to us and to notice us and to give us accolades and to validate us. For some of us, the other side of the coin is insecurity, and we say, man, I've sinned too much. I'm a, I'm a terrible person. I don't have the gifts. God could never use me. Right? I'm too far away from what I'm supposed to be. Well, let me try something. Everybody say Jesus. Jesus. Say Jesus. Jesus. All right, you passed the test. You can be a witness. If you can say the name of Jesus, you can point people to Jesus, you can be who he's called you to be. Now, our witness is necessary. It's a life or death issue. 
whether or not we open our mouths. However, just as important as what we are is what we are not. We are not the light. He is. And therefore, here's our equation this morning. He must become greater and I must become less. You and I were witnesses, and we're important witnesses, but only in relation to the one we witness to, the light. He is the light, we are the glass, and the less we become, the more he is magnified. You and I are the voice, and it matters that we speak and use our voice, but what matters more is the word that we say, and he is the word made flesh. May we speak the name Jesus. May we yell out like John the Baptist, for that people would turn their necks from their sins and see the Savior that has come. And that's exactly what we're going to do right now.